Dr. Umang Patel, the Chief Clinical Information Officer at Microsoft. How is Microsoft reshaping healthcare? One word answer is that we're doing it positively. Throughout my conversation with Umang, it was so clear that he is the definition of a medical leader. I always hate the term junior doctor. Like, why do we even start with, I'm a junior this or a junior that? Like, most places don't do that, right? How would someone place themselves in an, an ideal position to be successful in following a similar path? With all of the imposter syndrome that goes along that everybody's got with where they end up, so much of it is just dumb luck. I wouldn't have survived if I hadn't have got in on a Friday and been like, actually, this is why we need to do it. Then I think I'd have lost energy. Microsoft's investment in open AI and what that means for the future of AI in healthcare. Where do I see it being used? In everything. And of course, with colleagues, like we've all drunk the same Kool-Aid, we're like, we think it, it is going to be brilliant. Welcome back to Health Beyond Tomorrow. I am joined with another amazing inspirational health tech leader, and that's Dr. Umang Patel. He's the Chief Clinical Information Officer at Microsoft. Throughout my conversation with Umang, it was so clear that he is literally the definition of a medical leader. While still practicing as a pediatrician, he has jumped through multiple leadership roles at major tech giants. Some of those roles include clinical transformation lead at Aviva Health, the major insurance company, to clinical director at the major telemedicine giant Babylon, to now chief clinical information officer at Microsoft. In this conversation, we dive a little deeper into his whirlwind journey and he provides some valuable insights about keeping one foot in clinical practice and staying clinical, but also at the same time, having your other foot in multiple different areas, such as business and tech. He provides some valuable insights on the crucial lessons he's learned, specifically about selling yourself in the first couple of minutes and meeting someone and how that can open up unexpected doorways to limitless opportunities. He shares a little bit of light of what his role at Microsoft includes, other than having to reset Teams passwords. And of course, I couldn't let Umang go without talking a little bit about Microsoft and specifically Microsoft's investment in OpenAI and what that means for the future of AI in healthcare. Please make sure you hit that follow button or subscribe if you're on YouTube, just because it helps the channel to grow, keeps me motivated to keep getting guests like Umang on the show. So without further ado, it's best just to get into this episode. Enjoy. So Umang, it's great to have you on the podcast. And... I'm trying to move away from asking my guests about their journey because I know now that not many people are good at summarizing their story in two to three minutes. So I thought rather than asking you that question, I wanted to ask you a slightly different approach to your journey. So you've obviously transitioned from being a practicing pediatrician to Aviva Health, to Babylon, and now to Microsoft. So my question to you is what drove these career changes and what has each step taught you along the way? Great, cool, great question. I think probably firstly, Great to be here. Secondly, I think I'm still a pediatrician, right? That's still core to me. Somebody mentioned the other day, they mimicked me saying, hi, my name's Imang, uh, and I'm a practicing pediatrician as a starter. And I realized I say it like without thinking about it. It's almost like my surname. Yeah, um, it's part of your personality. <laughs> it is, yeah. Actually, it's a really good point. It's part of my identity. And to that, you know, what drove some of those changes uh, or decisions to not follow a traditional career path or, or maybe look outside of what was straight in front of me was having that identity. I just knew I was going to get frustrated if I didn't at least have a go at trying to work out what was the challenge, what the block was. I, mean, I think paediatrics is a great specialty, especially one that makes you think, I just can't deal with the problem in front of me because that may not be all that's there. I think that's true most of healthcare, but especially with children, and as we were chatting about before, right, everyone is lined up to make the child better, but you can't do that in isolation. You've got to think about the family. You've got to think about the other bits and pieces. When I was thinking about what well, healthcare in general it was clear that it couldn't just be healthcare that we needed to fix. It had to be the stuff around it. And I decided that I would love to have 
at least have a go at trying to be part of those processes, part of those um, ways of thinking. And uh, that led me to doing a leadership fellowship. And, you know, it led me to reach some great people that they said, well, what do you think the biggest challenge is? Like money is the biggest challenge. We never seem to have enough. So what can we do about that? And one thing led to another. And I thought, why not go and work for an insurance company where you can at least learn how money flows in an insured system. But if the NHS is too complicated, so that was my, my theory for going to Aviva. Uh, that and also learning how to use Excel, because everybody kept telling me when I talked to them that in the C-suites of hospitals that, that money was a burning platform and we needed more business cases and Excel spreadsheets. I'm not sure that was entirely true. It felt like, why not go there and learn that? And then from there, it was clear that, okay, well, you can work out how money works and other bits, but the transformation has to be more upstream. And that's when I met Ali and Babylon, and it was like, what can we do about that? Yeah, as, as we're seeing ever more acutely now, definitely not enough commissions on the front line and we're not in a magic tree of being able to create more how can we try and get more upstream, use different technologies and things to try and fill that gap? And he said, go and work for me here when you're ready. And I joined Babylon. And, and then from Babylon, it was like, okay, great. And we've done this thing. We hope it scaled and it scaled really well. And we're really proud of what we achieved. And then Microsoft knocked on the door and said, oh, if you're interested in healthcare, then what about having a think about what we're doing? And it's really hard to turn down the opportunity at a company that says we've got such a big scale. And they did a really good job of explaining to me that they really care about healthcare. And here I am. So you briefly brushed over the fact that Ali Parsad, that is CEO and founder of Babylon, approached you. And you spoke on Musti's podcast, Big Picture Medicine, a great friend of mine. And I was listening to your encounter. This was a couple of years ago. So I want to bring you back to what you said to him. And it was clear from that conversation that it's really crucial to be able to articulate your vision concisely. And that can open doors to unexpected opportunities. And this is something I'm getting better at in the first five minutes of meeting people, I want to try and sell myself. So could you maybe give some advice on how you managed in your first conversation with Ali to then persuade him that you were the right fit for you to join the team at Babylon? Yeah, great question. I mean, firstly, I wasn't aiming to do that. I hadn't heard of Babylon and others, but I think it's a really crucial skill and I would really counsel people to do it. Like, I think even the concept of, um, this was actually from Hilary Cass, who was, uh, um, she led the World College of Pediatrics. I remember talking to her once. She's like, I always hate the term junior doctor. I'm like, why do we even start with this? I'm a junior this or a junior that. Like most places don't do that, right? If you work in sales, when was the last time you met a junior sales? Anything, everyone is a sales director or a sales thing because it's really important to owe that identity and feel confident going forward. Yet we don't do that well in medicine. So that was from Hillary. And I listened to this great talk by a lady called Helen Bevan. He's still in the NHS and these great stuff and I, you know, if you ever get the chance to hear her talk do and, and actually get her on your podcast she's brilliant and she was like why don't you just go and tell people you want to do something and just try and for size she's i remember booking to show you to dinner parties when you meet new people and say you're a pilot an accountant uh, whatever you want to be and see if that's the thing that you want and i remember thinking well, at the time i wanted to be a chief exec of a hospital like i thought you know that was what i was gunning towards so i tried it out i wanted to tell people i'm not that i am a chief exactly but I'm on that pathway. And I'd really practiced that, that sort of narrative in my head. I was comfortable with it. I felt like I could say it. So when I got to meet Ali, albeit briefly at that time, and then he had a few minutes to chat, but it ended up being a couple of hours as we got on. My starter was, if I'm a pediatrician right now, I want to be the chief executive of a hospital. How can you help? Or what is it in that vein that I can do for you? In spite of meeting Ali, but before that, all of those conversations I had where I took that approach, it meant people could go, oh, great, I can now put you into a bucket. You're a doctor that wants to do something in management. 
have you spoken to such and such? Have you thought about doing this? Or actually, I've got a project that I wonder if might be of interest to you. It was a lot sort of better for them getting to the next part of the, the conversation than I'm not sure what I want to do. Let me tell you about my story. And people being like, you know, I'm nice, I'm going to listen, but really, I don't know how to help you. And now we've run out of time. Fantastic advice. Something that I found worked for me is I've removed the word just from my vocabulary. As a medical student, I now have started owning the fact that, you know what, I am a medical student and I'm proud of that. I, though I'm not a senior as a consultant, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Everyone's gone through the same journey. And so I've stopped introducing myself as, hi, I'm just a medical student. So yeah, really great advice there. And so have you ever seen the meme where there's a, there's a comparison between two different people? So what everyone thinks I do and what I actually do. And so yeah. I was speaking to Vishal, head of YouTube Health, about what his role at YouTube is. And he made a little joke about what everyone thinks I do is just sit around watching YouTube all day, watching Mr. Beast, watching the Sidemen, all these famous YouTubers. But what he actually does, does is so different. So I wanted to ask you the same question. What do people think you do at Microsoft? And then compare that to now what you actually do at Microsoft. Yeah, yeah good question. And, and I saw Vishal the other day at ConFed. So if he's listening, thank you for the socks. And, and he did promise so here, he promised he was going to make me a great YouTuber so that my kids think I do something cool watch this space, but we'll see. But I think at Microsoft is I go in on a Friday. That's my clinical day. So I'm going to throw me on a Friday and everybody's that my teams isn't working. How can you fix it? But so there's that element of are you the engineer or are you IT support? I think people that don't think that probably think I sit and make PowerPoints. That's the equivalent. You know, what do you do if you work for Microsoft to make PowerPoint presentations? So that's what people think I do. I think what I do actually do, I'd say the job is mostly about translating, right? Like it's a communication job that the gig is thinking there's a load of technology that we need and there's a load of technology or problems that could potentially be solved. And there's a load of products and services and ideas already out there. But how do we communicate to the right people that they're available and in a way that makes them want to get engaged in them? That's what I mainly do, talking to health system leaders or people on the shop floor about what could happen. Also trying to understand the challenges that are top of their mind, right? If you just sit there and think from Microsoft's world, we've built something and why can't people just use it? That's not going to get you very far. Clearly what we want to be able to do is say, what are the challenges? How are they going to help? And then try and develop those stories. You obviously still do that Friday shift in Pete's. So tell me how valuable do you think that day is? Despite it only being a day, how valuable do you think it is in making your opinion credible in this whole tech world? Yeah, I think there are two questions there. Like the first one is how valuable is it? Like super valuable to me. Right. I remember when I thought about you know, trying to do a career in the private sector as well as healthcare. Everyone said there weren't that many people that did it. I'm pleased now that there are a lot. So, so you can do it, but you've got to be brave enough to ask. And even if you only do 20% of the time, that doesn't mean you've only got to do 20% of your revalidation and so on. You've got to be able to carve all of that stuff out but really valuable. I wouldn't have survived, I don't think, the job, right? Babylon was an amazing journey, but super stressful and we did loads of things in it. If I hadn't have got in on a Friday and been like, actually, this is why we need to do it, then I think I'd have lost energy. If I don't do my Fridays, I, you know, for whatever reason, I can notice it, I can feel like, hang on a minute, I'm not connecting back. So really important for me. I think it's an interesting one about staying credible. Like, I, I don't know, that's for other people to decide. I don't, to your earlier point about not calling yourself a, just a medical student or a junior doctor, like you're as credible as your, I guess, passion and energy dictates, right? So it's, for me, it's, it makes me feel more credible and therefore I really am more determined to get some of the stuff done that we want to do. 
I don't know if the fact that I am an acting paediatrician and I've got that badge makes that much difference. It's a little bit like I don't have an MBA. I don't have my CCT, right? Like a lot of these things that if you were doing on paper way back when, you'd be like, I better tick those off before anybody would take me seriously. You know, I hope people still take me seriously and we get stuff done. Yeah, great. And so I'm going to ask you now a very intentionally broad question. And there's some reasons why it's intentionally broad, which I can get onto later. But the question is, how is Microsoft reshaping healthcare? Yeah, really poor question. One word answer I'd hope is that we're doing it positively. I'd, when I was being recruited from Microsoft, somebody said to me, do you think the NHS could run without Microsoft? And I had to take a minute. I think, well, they probably not. Now, that's not to say that's right or wrong, but just when I went through my day today, I was like, we just use so many applications built on top of it. You know, as we get more and more digital and require that, we really do need big tech involved in that. And that made me think about things very differently about being able to go into big tech outside of trying to solve the challenge of primary care of Babylon or trying to learn about other things through different roles. So that's point one. I think point two, where Microsoft comes into it, and I'd be really pleased, is there's a, a genuine desire. It's a, it's a very quietly confident organization, which I love. It's like we just, I think there's a genuine desire to solve problems, think about them, it's been around for a while, and so on. I think the use of teams during the pandemic and countless other examples, a testament to that. But the desire is saying, we've got this stuff, how can we use it? Not just in healthcare, but that's obviously the area that we focus in on near my team. But how can we use it maximally? And I, I really like that, right? So what is it that we can do that we've got this? So without overriding the pudding on teams, but that's what people see and understand. You know, so we've built this thing, but it wouldn't have been deployable had we not have had a big tech platform behind it that has then changed the way that we very much deliver healthcare in the hospital. Um, the idea of that then is extended into what we did with Babylon, into telemedicine and so on and so forth, um, into the onward thinking about how healthcare is going to be set up in the future. In 10 years time, if we repeat this podcast, it's going to be entirely different, right? And it won't be, it'll be an entire hybrid mix of how we're delivering it, wearables and all the other bits that come into it, that has to be linked together by something somehow, big data has to play a part in that. I'm sure at some point we're going to get onto AI and the potentials about those bits. So all of that has to be there. And, and from Microsoft's perspective, we'd love to be a, a relevant part of that. Uh, we'd like to be the safest and the most trusted provider in that space. Uh, I think it's a great point that we've got to now with it. And I have to admit, I'm 18 months in and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, fantastic. And you wrote in your Microsoft blog, I think you quoted someone, forgive me, I forgot who you quoted, but... It was something along the lines of the only renewable source of energy in healthcare are patients. And you spoke a little bit about how there's only going to be an increase in patients. So patients are only increasing, health professionals are decreasing. So how can we leverage technology to ensure that patients still are getting the optimum amount of care and great quality care, despite the fact that the number of health professionals are declining? Yeah, there was, that was a Simon Stevens quote. And exactly that. I think we, we see that for almost all things, not unique to healthcare. Like you do something really well, then of course demand surges for it. And actually you can't quite keep up with it. Ironically in healthcare, the better we do, the worse we make it. Right? So we've got to work out some way of, of utilising that energy. Uh, I think that the, the way that tech does it, and I, what I, I love seeing is when you think of something that's so simple, like when you see... We always use Uber as an example. Like when you see something as easy as clicking some buttons and booking, 
How great is that? The ability for Amazon to order stuff. All of that, the stuff that then is mind-blowingly good because you're like, hang on a minute, I never thought it could be that easy, but it just is. And then how quickly it is for you to forget how how it was before, right? So if I think about communication as a, a strong point that we've got on as Microsoft, like before Outlook or before Word or before other bits and pieces, I, and I wasn't there for that, I'm not that old, but before those elements of it, you know, that would have been super hard to have got we were relying on faxes, we were relying on this, we were relying on people literally getting on bikes and running notes from one part of London to another or x-rays and files. So the world has suddenly moved on and it now seemed easier. Interestingly, throughout that point, we've not, as a world has got easier from that sense, that has meant that we, it's not like then patients have gone, oh, this is great, we're done now. There's, we've got other problems we need to, to face up to and, and we can now put our energy into to solving. For me, that comes through in our, our ability to have more time to care. I think to answer your question on partly what you can't run healthcare with technology alone, right? Nobody's suggesting that, but we do need to have people doing the job that they want to do. I don't think anybody starting medical school or starting training as a nurse sits there thinking, do you know what? I wish I could do all day, sit at a computer and type, right? Nobody thinks that way. It was like, how can I do this? Generally, people have a story that says, I remember this, I want to go into this vacation because it really mattered to my family or I can see how I can get true purpose and meaning out of it. That's what we've then got to do with tech is to say, let's remove some of that other stuff so you can do that bit. I then think that's exactly what we want people doing and we can potentially do more with fewer people because of the efficiencies, et cetera. But equally, we'll keep more people and it's a great place. Going back to Friday's my favorite day of the week. It's a great job. I can't think of a better one but we've got to do whatever we can to make sure that it's enjoyable and protected for everybody. Yeah, the word enjoyable there makes me chuckle a little bit just because I was getting so frustrated just on my placement in Nottingham where all the patient records and data is still, pa- it's still, it's still paper records. So you're having to go through folders of these big like orange folders of patient records dating back a couple of months ago. And despite loving clinical practice there's moments like them where i'm trying to locate these paper uh records it makes the job not enjoyable and so i want to ask you a huge buzzword at the moment is obviously ai but alongside ai obviously supercomputing and microsoft has an amazing healthcare platform called azure i want to make sure i said that right yeah. azure and that is supporting healthcare organizations with data storage and analysis of this of the vast amount of patient records so maybe you can talk a little bit about that to make the process a bit more enjoyable for clinicians yeah like i laughed equally when you said orange folder i kid you not before we put in our electronic patient record at frimley we had an orange folder for blood results so it was literally a lever arch folder that was orange that you would write i've sent this for what i've done this on and you'd write it on a piece of paper stick it in there and whoever was on would like go through it once a week and train our parents and tell them of course to the parents they'd be starting getting like the most important thing on their plate then is finding out the result from this to us it's maybe not quite so important or one of other things and all too often that lever arch folder would break i remember once somebody said they're going oh my gosh with the orange folder is broken and we don't have another orange folder and it was like the biggest panic because if it's not we know it is the orange folder and if you use a black folder it's not on it at one point it had orange folder written on a black folder to make the point i was like how can we possibly that can't be tr- like the way we do things i'm really pleased now that we've got we've got epic in at Frimley as an epr and that that problem has gone away there are other problems of course of implementing these services but that problem's 
gone away. That's no longer there. I can now look up yeah. all my failure blood result for a patient. I can look up all of that stuff around. I can send them a, a text message as soon as I've given them a diagnosis with a, a care plan. Like it's all of that stuff is brilliant. And now they can have their own app and click a button and they can see their own files and results, which I just think are, are, are brilliant. I think the the buzzwords then are, okay, what do you do? The challenge of putting that stuff in and going to Azure and other ways of doing it, the way that we've got the infrastructure set up to do it, it's akin to, I don't know how old you are, right? But your mum or dad or family members will have had shed loads of photo albums, right? And you just- Yeah, I still do. Me. So you can see this answer is really tidy, but behind there are just stacks of boxes of stuff. And we've been putting stuff out of the loft and I was thinking, in the future, right, we've pulled out old photo albums, old textbooks, old bits that, of course, you just don't have in the modern age. But if you imagine you took the number of photos we take today, if you print them and put them in a photo album, you can't store them, you've got to move them somewhere else. That problem, of course, has gone away because of your iPhone or whatever phone you have, and you store it on the cloud and you just don't think about it. Every time I go and do something for the records now in my electronic patient record, rather than just write a snippet because I didn't have enough time to, I cut and paste almost everything that was done the day before I transfer it over because I'm not going to run out of paper. But of course, as the front line, we don't think about that's still got to be stored somewhere. And if we've got to store it somewhere, that can't be in a box in the, the corner of a basement somewhere. So that's hence cloud. The second part of that is going, imagine if you could suddenly access all of that information and have really clever ways of utilizing it. Um, and that's where AI comes in. That's where great data science comes in too, and new elements of computing. Because then we can take that information and hopefully find out things that we don't know. There was a time, of course, that we just thought smoking was good. And if you ask doctors, they'd say, yeah, smoke is great. That Everyone's seen that camel advert of, this is the doctor's favorite brand or whatever it was. Until somebody did a study that showed on 5,000 people that if you smoked, you were much more likely to get lung cancer. So just don't do that. Imagine if we can now do that sort of huge data analysis and incorporate genetics, etc. Then I suddenly start feeling really hopeful about mental health, as an example. I wonder what the next revolution will be. Maybe it won't just be chemicals to change physiology. It will be behavioral programs that can help us just feel better. No idea, but I do know that if we keep on trying to do the same old thing and expect different results, then we're just not going to get there. And the reason I asked you that intentionally broad question at the start is because I felt that subconsciously, if I asked you a broad question, rather than directing you what to say, you would tell me what you're most excited about. So is that true? Is that what you're most excited about the future of healthcare? Yeah, no, great. You, you, yeah, that classic, ask an open question. Unless you don't have enough time, then ask a really pointed one. But no, I love it. The, yeah. It's exactly that. I've not been... I, I say this and it sounds like I'm trying to make a joke. Right? I remember the first time I saw a color mobile phone actually i got hold of one i got this this is going way back in case anybody's old listening the sony ericsson t68i in color was amazing and it was the first time i truly believed that this was going to just be everything and it wasn't per se because it was color alone etc but for some reason i was just like i just can't see how this isn't going to be you know and the way that we use phones now just i just thought that was going to be it the first time I saw some of the large language model stuff, the, the AI stuff actually, even before, that was, I get the same sense of excitement around every time I see a new revelation in that. I just go, I just think this is going to be the way that we do it. This is going to mean that whatever the equivalent of taking face, a camera with you everywhere is, whatever is having information at your fingertips is for healthcare. 
I think for us that means being able to provide maximum care for our patients, right? Because we can see stuff that's relevant in front of us versus us having to sift through a load of information because we can surface it in the right way. I love the idea of being able to use stuff that makes it easier for patients to access their own elements of healthcare. I can't wait for us to be able to just at the drop of the hat translate leaflets on patient care to whatever language that patient might want or for them to be like actually can i start asking somebody else questions versus you because i need to know this or that or the other but those use cases i think are wonderfully exciting yeah definitely exciting and we have i have been holding off asking you about ai because i wanted the second half of our conversation to be specifically focused around that because obviously huge talking point at the moment massive buzzwords and just in general i think is super interesting so Again, I'm going to reference another blog, and all these blogs I will be putting in the description. They're super interesting. But this is a blog that Microsoft wrote, and they're talking about these AI large language models and how they're going to create transformative impact at the magnitude of personal computer, the internet, mobile devices, and the cloud. And it that line demonstrates, obviously, that Microsoft have high expectations of AI, and along with the fact that Microsoft have also invested heavily in open AI Tell me a little bit about these high expectations of AI, specifically in the context of healthcare and how you think these large-scale AI models will be transforming healthcare industry in the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I think from from Mark's point of view, we're really excited, right? And sometimes, like I kid you not, my wife was like, we went to a wedding and she was like, you're not allowed to talk about it. She's because <laughs> you think it's really exciting. I'm pretty sure the rest of the table won't. And like, you're probably, that's all you're going to want to talk about. So I was like banned from talking about AI and GPT and large language models. I, I found somebody to talk yeah. about it in the corner. Like it, it's just, it is really, it's that exciting. And of course, internally uh, with colleagues, like we've all drunk the same Kool-Aid. We're like, we think it's, it, it, it is going to be brilliant. I think the potential is huge. I think and anything transformative, like I, I often talk about the invention of the motor car, meaning that all of the problems we had from horse manure from the 1840s or whatever it was, 1890s, seemed insurmountable. There's that great story, I'm sure lots of listeners to this will have heard it, so I won't repeat it, but the horse manure crisis where, because there were so many horses, nobody knew what to do, but then the motor car came along. and We use that often as an allegory, if that's the right word, for why do we need to adopt tech. I think similar to that, though, the same problem evolves. You invent the motor car itself one problem, but then you create others, right? You've got the infrastructure around it. You've got to add safety belts. You've got to make sure everyone drives on the same side of the road. Well, to the excitement of what it can do is also the excitement, and I use that word deliberately, of being able to regulate it properly. And so all of us that were involved in this and thinking about how we're going to use it, it's not a toy. It's not in the ways that we want to use it. It's not for just for fun or to quickly solve a problem. Um, for its own sake, I'm excited about this generation being able to take these tools, shape them as Microsoft. We've got a, an AI, a responsible AI framework, which we talk about loads, um, that takes people through that process. But I think the generations that are coming through now that are looking at this to build out their career, I'm excited to be part of it to see how can we make sure we do build that infrastructure and how can we think about, I'm going down a, a rabbit hole here, how do we know how bright the headlights need to be? How do you know what safe is? How do you set speed limits? How do you do all of those things in a way that also gets you to what you need to, we need to do, which is provide optimum patient care at scale. That being involved in that is exciting as much as just having the tools themselves. So tell me, where do you see AI being used in the next 10 to 15 years in healthcare? Because we've seen over the past couple of months that now AI is mainstream in terms of everyone's talking about it. It's a huge buzzword. Everyone's putting on Twitter their 
top five AI chat GPT prompts. And I know obviously there are some stuff you wouldn't be able to disclose working at Microsoft, but what are some of the things that you're most excited about specifically in terms of the AI context in healthcare? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I'll, I'm doing, and I invite anybody actually, find me on LinkedIn and, and drop me a note. Because one of the things I think we're struggling to do is orientate the conversation with the AI. To, to answer your question, in 15 years time, where do I see it being used? In everything that we're doing in healthcare. For right now, what's the roadmap to doing that safely? Where do you start? Uh, I think it broadly falls within sort of four areas of which they'll start concurrently. One is how do we do stuff before people get ill? How do we better support patients before they come in? What's that look like for getting wearable data, for example, usable by all parties, just as a quick example. There's stuff obviously when people arrive at the hospital or there's an event or there's an incident or chronic illness, how do you deal with that? Good use cases, and I'm excited to think about what we could do with rehab. How do we get you back to where you want to be? Because I think healthcare to date, historically, we've been spending so much time thinking, how do we, ideal state, avoid the problem? Get that. Can't avoid the problem. Let's fix a problem. I think the next era will be, what can we do about there's been a problem? We've helped people live longer and supported all the bits through that. How do we help people get back to where they want to be from that? So I think rehabilitation I think we'll start, my personal prediction will change it from just how do I get you well enough to get you home again so you're not here to how do I really properly rehabilitate you in order to get you to enjoy uh, life as you were from before. I think there's some amazing use cases potentially in, in there. Going outside of patient direct care, I think there's getting people ready. I don't know if you guys have seen it or use it as if you're using it not in medical school right now or not, but if you use GPT to say, hey, can you just pretend to be a patient and let's just role play a scenario? I think that's brilliant. And I was talking about it on Friday to somebody in the hospital and they're like, yeah, but that's pointless, right? Like, why would you, and I, I won't say who they were, but they very much were always going to end up being a surgeon, right? Because you could clearly see in their mind, they were like, look, it doesn't matter. I just say stuff. They have to listen to what I say. And I was like, okay, but when was the last time you talked to somebody that English wasn't their first language? They were seven and they had whatever the thing was, right? The last time they came here, they ended up with an adverse incident, right? We don't get to role play those scenarios unless they come in. And by the time they've come in, we've not been able to prep them. Wouldn't it be great to be able to start doing that or really helping people do that in their own time? There's a whole host of stuff in training, which is really exciting and getting them, you know, getting prepared. I was talking to somebody at Confed about how can we start using AI so we know that if one theater shots on one site, very quickly to do the sums on where we need to shift equipment in order to maximize the operations happening at another site, right? Stuff like that. I think mean, that's where AI can come in really well. And then that's not even to mention the other huge part of what it can do for research, uh, discovery, those types of things. Yes, tons of in interesting stuff there. And I'm specifically, obviously, being at med school, finding ways where I can implement ChatGPT into my workflow just to 10x my productivity, just to make my life a bit more efficient. And it's something I'm trying to teach other med students about the best ways to prompt AI models because it's something that obviously isn't covered in the curriculum. And I actually did uh, produce a blog post around my top five AI prompts for med students. It's, I'll link it in the description. It actually did, went viral on TikTok as well. It did pretty well. And so that's something I'm really passionate about. So there's somewhat a juxtaposition. So having these, the analogy I thought, let's say you have a really cool five screen desk set up in front of you, but the keyboard's not working, so there's no point. So that just juxtaposition, you can translate 
into this argument is there a point in having these cool AI tools if no one knows how to use it and how can we overcome that how can we overcome the fact that we need to start training people how to effectively use it and understand how to use them and bridge this gap yeah and i think um it's exactly that right i wrote a blog for hsj about curious barbers to where we are now right so why do surgeons start as barbers they had the tools they were curious enough and they tried to help i think we're in a different position with this where we're able now better to say we've got the tools what can we do in order to put them into practice safely so the first thing is which is why i came on this right let's talk about it let's put it up there i think we have to put the pros and the cons and the risks as as, as well as the positives out there what i'd love to see i don't know how to do this but i would love to i would love to see people say and i think this will have to come from students and people that are looking at it where you've got more time and you're going to be living with this way longer if you're starting your career than somebody at the end of their career. So I think there's a definite need for people to come in and be like, I want to think about this because I want it to be able to do this because I need to do that as a collective. Uh, so I think that's important. And the, the, the second part of that is then how do we engage those communities to talk about it? How do we put stuff through the right research protocols? I talked about responsible AI as a framework at Microsoft. That was our toolkit to say, here's a starter. For if you've got an idea, how do you make sure that you can put it through a process that means you're not accidentally biasing something because you get so excited about the end. And actually, this isn't your day job, right? And we put the effort into creating that to try and help steer stuff towards then. I think that's where we are with it right now. Like I said, I'd really encourage people to talk about it and, and join a community that hopefully we'll be able to see them as Microsoft or even as individuals. But I think if we miss this opportunity to be engaged in the processes, one of the few things might happen. One is we'll resent it a bit later and we'll be like, I wish I'd been able to do that, but now you can't. And that, that's just a shame. Or the second is that these things will develop and then they'll, they won't have the right things in that encourage more people to want to use them going forward, right? It's a Da Vinci robot for surgery, right? This isn't the case because people do enjoy using it. But if it was rubbish to use, we would just stop people if it made your hand hurt or, or had something else or actually meant that for whatever reason we'd just get we'd get less usage out of it and that would be a problem and the robot may not be the right thing because you're like okay of course you're going to counter for that but let's say for example they set the pedestal you had to be over six foot in order to be able to operate it everyone's going to be worse off for that the challenge is not going to be overt with ai but if we keep on doing stuff about engaging the widest possible community thinking through what does it mean to include everybody in this so we get those opinions going forward I don't want to wake up in 15 years and have people being like, I wanted to be a doctor, but actually I decided not to because of something that we could have changed now. And just because we hadn't thought about it. Yeah, great answer. So you mentioned some of the, the pros and cons of AI models and specifically cons. And I guess one of the, the biggest talks of discussion about concerns is obviously the responsible and ethical use of AI models. And you mentioned as well Microsoft's responsibility framework and so I think it'll be great to talk a little bit about that so I listened to the panel discussion I think it was the chief medical scientist officer at Microsoft did Dr. Junaid Bajwa and it was a really interesting conversation as how of how we ensure the responsible and ethical use of AI in healthcare so maybe you can give your perspective as well. Yeah and I love Junaid actually he, he got me he was a guy that said you should think about working at Microsoft. Massive shout out to Junaid. And again, if you can ever see him speak or listen to him, he, and you must get him on actually, but he's got a really good perspective on how we have to take these things forward. I think I'm, 
It's interesting because, like, I'm the type of person that bought six mini disc players. So I was convinced that mini disc, like, again, this may be too old of it, but like, I'm a classic early adopter. Like, I just want new stuff. I think it, if it works, I get overexcited about it and then just you over index on doing it. I, I have to catch myself, therefore, when I think about the, the ways that we might use AI. And I've got a great colleague, Geraint, Dr. Geraint Lewis. We work backwards and forwards with each other the whole time. So we're constantly sat thinking through it. And sometimes you have to catch it, but, like, but you have to just wait. Don't get too excited about that. Stop thinking that we can get all of the discharge summary summarized straight away because you've got to put it through the processes. On the one hand, I think we do have to be really cautious. On the other, though, I really don't want to stifle the excitement that can come through from it. And then I, the other thing that I'd add to, to sort of the general comments that we always make and Janae would definitely put across is we must include the patients in that party. I think for this, I strongly lean towards we've got to get everybody involved. And going back to my earlier point, I think that's because this is going to be so important for the way that everybody accesses their healthcare in the future that I think it would be wrong to do it the other way around. Yeah, great. You've already talked about this for ages, but how, how do we get everyone involved? What's the, what's the initial steps to, to do that? Yeah, I mean, you talked about it, right? I think we've got to put that stuff up yeah. on there. Like TikTok, great. The answer is every which way you can. So I think there's something about sharing those things, being really thoughtful about, say, oh, you know, I haven't, I can check your TikTok video. But if you were like, like, everybody do this directly for patients, then I would be saying that you've got to take that down. I think we're just like, I thought about using it like this. Has anyone else got any thoughts about it? Let's see, okay, that's great. And I love, I, I would love for people to be like, I've got this, and I think this is going to really solve a problem for me. I had a, um, I was talking to a neurology consultant this morning. He was like, I've got sh so much data because I've, I've been keeping my own Excel log for the last 25 years about my patients with epilepsy and the outcomes that happened and others. You know, I've just collected up all of this stuff. I wish I had some way of utilizing it to turn it into what I can see as a, a process. And I think we now can for various bits. And I just, it's that sort of thing. You got somebody coming and being like, I've been waiting to solve this problem where I can see that this is a big problem. Uh, is there a way that you can help me solve it? And of course, you can't do all of those, right? So it's not like we can be like, yeah, absolutely, you've had one thing, we're going to do that. But we can then, and by we, people working in this sector, us as a collective sort of group, say, these ones are what we should tackle first, or let's combine you to that, or what about are we doing here for this? Can we combine that data set with that data set? Can we double check what we've decided here against you over there? I think that's the way forward. There isn't going to be a single way, I don't think, of doing it. I think lots of talking, lots of people being willing to put their hand up and say, I'd love to be involved or kind of ask you this question is the way to go. And so Umang, you've obviously transitioned or transitioned. You still have a foot in the clinical world, but you transitioned into branching out into the business world, which is very different to what us as medics are exposed to. So tell me a little bit about that transition in terms of how would someone who's looking to do a similar transition to you place themselves in an, an ideal position to be successful in following a similar path. With all of the imposter syndrome that goes along that everybody's got with where they end up, so much of it is just dumb luck, like that chance encounter with Ali and so on. But one of the things that I'd always say to people is, and I think this is true of medics, especially is you've got to, com you've got to commit to working out what it is you do. And at Babylon, we have this thing of one of our interview questions was, what are you going to do that's 10x your salary? So my first stage would be for people to really think through that question. What are you going to do that's 10x however much you want to get from this? We were talking about what people, if, what medics think my world is that I'm super rich and go around drinking fancy coffee and 
whatever. What is my life really? Like a shed load of emails. I think medics sometimes think, well, I'll just go into this and it'd be easy. I can apply my general intellect into this. One of the things that we were trying to get forced and, and Ali was great at this was like, really think about what is 10x your salary. So how much is it you want, firstly? Because you may go, do you know what? I'm so passionate about this. I'll take a very low salary and therefore the outcome is different. So think about what you want and what you want 10x of that. Then how are you going to get to 10x of that? And you know, I'm sure there are more ways, but I think broadly they fall into three categories. Like you can build something. Say, so I'm going to build something that gets sold and that will generate 10x what I'm doing. You can sell it. Right, it can be the part of the process that sells it. That's actually the bit that I'm in, right? I would love to be able to build a load of stuff, but actually the most part is how do I communicate what stuff is there in order to be able to get people to do it. But I always go back to, I've got to be able to do 10x my salary to justify, am I doing it well? That enables my benchmark. Um, or you can run something. It can be like operational. How can I make sure this is safe? How can I make sure that it scales or is efficient or whatever else? So we would say in... In Babylon, we'd be like, you're either part of the build function, the sell function, or the run function. And then within that, you've got a D10X. To then answer your question, once you've worked out where you vaguely think you're most likely to hit that 10X, you've got to be useful in it. What you can't do is jump from one to the other and then assume you'll be able to do it. If you're going to build something, you've got to be able to, you know, cut build or do whatever else. You've got to do something on product that involves years of training, the same as if you want to become a specialist or you want to complete whatever you want to do in life. If you want to sell something, you've got to be able to work out how to do that, work in your communication skills. You've got to be have that network and, and so on and so forth. And running things requires you to have the expertise or the knowledge about how you might do things differently or the processes to go through that. So my steer to anybody thinking, how do I do that? Would be to deeply think, what is it that I think I'm most, what's my personality most likely to do? And then going back to that thing that Helen Bevan said was like, test it out. Go and say, I'm an administrator. If you think, run and see how you feel when you say it or, I sell ice cream or whatever the thing is, right? In order just to see what it feels like. But when you think that's your best match, keep putting on that thread. And then um, I think you'll be most likely to be successful. And then of course the game changes. And I remember, um, I, you know, Ali's listening to this because like, he'll deny that he said it. But I was like, Ali, he was like <laughs> filling me off as a mate. And I was like, but Ali, look, I've done 10X my salary on this thing, right? Yeah, but it's 10X of your whole team. And so just the gold piece keeps on changing. But anyway, my point was um, that I think that that's a great way to frame it. And I think it, hopefully gives people some way of thinking, how do I inwardly look at what I might be able to do and quantify it? Because I think the worst thing is you get really excited about jumping into something a bit different. Sometimes that's just because the grass is greener and the current job is really hard and it looks rosier on the other side. But my worry then is if you haven't done that thinking, you'll jump over the fence and you just won't enjoy it. And that's really sad too, right? I think often we take people that, are, that by definition are bright by definition, care about people and want to do good, we've got to work out how to utilize them and some of that starts with being able to quantify what you would deem as your own success. Yeah, fantastic advice there. So Imang, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And just before I let you go, could you give maybe a quick two-liner of some words of inspiration for the audience just to get them up out of their seat and you know what, start their journey forward? into the future right. beyond tomorrow as the podcast yes yeah. <laughs> great I, i'd say first thank you for having me and like i've really enjoyed it and my shout out to people who like they hesitate coming and saying hello find us at conferences saying hello on linkedin um 
I want to be like Vishal, you had on the other day, Janaid, you're going to get on. I want to make sure that I've got more LinkedIn followers than them because that's my validation, partly joking, but also partly true. The, so the, my, my, steer, my advice would be, somebody gave me this great advice once that was like, when you're thinking it, when you don't know what to do or you're thinking about how to do it, just say yes to everything that comes in. Say yes to every meeting, even if you're not sure how it's going to, don't, don't overthink it, just say yes. And at the very beginning of my journey on this, I remember saying, yes, I'll just do that. It's how I ended up meeting Ali after a chance encounter with somebody else, having a chance encounter with somebody else. They just said, have you met this person? I'd be like, would you like to meet this person? And because I just knew I was going to say yes, I just said, oh, yes, please, and met them. And, and so that would be my steer, right? Like, it doesn't, you don't have to overthink it. You don't need to have written out your strategy or have a five-year plan. Just start saying yes and start meeting people. Yeah, great. It might have been my pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Great, thank you.